Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right. Okay, so today and probably a little bit next time as well, basically what I'm going to do is just introduce some topics, uh, sorry, some terms, key terms, key concepts that will allow us to discuss things in general. Um, the first thing we have to figure out is what a drug is. And as most of you guys in here, uh, even if you're not a biology student, uh, if you're a psychology student, you know that we're, we treat this, this is a science, so we need to define things. So what is a drug? Well, um, the first answer we typically get is, well, we all know what a drug is. It's the same thing, we, and then we have this problem a lot in, in psychology, in the sort of more social psychology angle, the more sort of social science part of psychology, where someone says they want to study, let's say, intelligence. And they say, well, what's intelligence? And someone says, everybody knows what intelligence is. And they say, well, I, I can't measure it. I don't know what it is. So we have to find a way to define it. Um, and, you know, with intelligence, we say you're scoring an IQ test, and everybody's happy, and yay, and it's all good. At least we all agree. What it means, we don't have to, you may not like intelligence tests, that's, that's your problem, not mine. But even in the case, let's say you're studying love. What is love? Well, you could make up a questionnaire. Well, you would think with something like a drug, which is something that is pretty, you know, we're not dealing with a sort of social concept, or we're dealing with something that, you know, affects the nervous system, which is what we're interested in in this class, at least. Um, we should be able to get a definition. So we need some sort of definition. One you hear a lot is something that alters physiology, but it is not food. And on the surface, that sounds pretty good. Well, vitamin C. Or any vitamin. I picked vitamin C because I really like that graduation song that vitamin C did. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Um, vitamins are kind of weird things. We need them to survive. Or we get, well, at least not to get scurvy. Um, I wouldn't call vitamins a drug. I don't think anybody would. It doesn't fit with our sort of intuitive notion, so that doesn't work. Some things that we consider drugs are, depending on their dose, poisons. Gasoline is a drug. We'll talk about uh, one of the most depressing lecture you will ever hear. is the one on inhalant use, mostly gas huffing. Gasoline, first of all, is a useful product. Our economy runs on it. We kind of need it. It's also, if you drink enough of it, it'll kill you. So it's a poison. But when just huffed, it makes you go into a stupor and gets you kind of high. So it's kind of an odd one. Same thing, you know, contact cement. You ever, you know, the, the stuff you use to, you, the, the green glue that smells like markers? Right, you let it dry, then you put it together, it never comes apart. And that can be a drug if you've ever uh, used that and not had proper ventilation, and you end up, you and your father, when you're doing the basement, being all loopy. That's what happened to me when I was 12. And you decided to stop at that point. There's things like mugwort, which is a sort of traditional herbal thing. Uh, mugwort has a can give you hallucinations. Okay. So it's clearly playing with your brain. It also can give you an abortion. A traditional method of, of, of aborting a fetus. Uh, it can also kill you. Take enough. So that's, yeah, 
we might maybe we don't need the definition. I, I and I hate to say that because I hate things like that. One of the reasons I hate the word consciousness because I can't define it. Yet we almost have to stick with an intuitive definition here, which still bugs the hell out of me. And you might want to look at, say, you're treating something. Or if you're trying to get high of some sort, right? Because, I mean, psycho, we're talking about psychoactive drugs, so we're talking about things that are affecting our behavior and our cognition. But what if you're taking something that we all recognize as a drug, but not to treat anything and not to get high? So what about a glass of Coke? Not, you know, but a Coke. Coke has about 35 milligrams in a can of, ca of, of caffeine in a, in a can of Coke. It's not a lot of caffeine. That's about a third of what's in a proper cup of coffee. I know people that drink Coca-Cola for the caffeine kick. Or that have a caffeine, you know, they're dependent on caffeine and they drink Diet Coke. Cheryl Reed Elder. No, Cheryl drinks a lot of caffeine, a lot of, a lot of Diet Coke. She, she pretty much lives on Diet Coke. It's, uh, it's just a known fact. She doesn't drink coffee, but she drinks a lot of Coke. That's fine. But when I drink a Coke, when I'm at McDonald's and I'm ordering whatever meal I'm getting, I get a Coke. I don't go, oh, good, and a Coke, because that'll wake me up. Right? It'll focus me for eating this quarter pounder. It doesn't really, you know, it's not why I'm taking it. So, and it's not treating anything. Um, or a cup of coffee. Now, again, most of us, how many people here had a cup of coffee this morning? Yeah, sure, most of us, right? How many people here before they had a cup of coffee had, were a bit grumpy, probably a little bit stuffed up, had a, yeah, there you go, had a, uh, let's see, what else? Maybe a little bit of a headache. That's caffeine dependence. Don't worry about it. 190 million North Americans are dependent on caffeine. It's pretty damn safe. Unless there's an international caffeine conspiracy. <laughs> then again, how often do you just go for a cup of coffee? And it's not to wake up. It's not like it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You've had two classes. And you go, oh, my God, I need a cup of coffee. Because at that point, you may as well say, oh, my God, I should just snort some Ritalin. I mean, it'll wake you up, too. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you do that. But, you know, it's fun. That little brother's got ADHD. Just crush him up. You're fine for the day. Um, but there's other times you just go out for a cup of coffee. It's one of those things that's like, let's go for a coffee. Right? So you're not taking it to treat anything, which you're doing if you're you know, caffeine dependent in the morning, and it's also waking you up. You're not doing it to get high in any way, because it's hard to get high on coffee. You can. You need to drink about 10 cups of coffee in about an hour, and you'll, you'll feel something. Even a beer. I have heard that you can have a beer. <laughs> the beer is a singular. Uh, I've never really tested the hypothesis, but apparently, like I've never tested the hypothesis that liquor keeps. Once you've opened it, you've got to finish it. But people go out for a beer. They're on the way home, they go out for a beer with their friends. Yeah. And you're not going, oh, good, I'm going to get kind of all hammered. And you're probably not drinking and thinking, well, yes, of course, the, uh, this would be good for my heart. So even in that case, or after you've mowed the lawn, you know, you're, it's the summer, or you're building a deck. 
built a deck in Newfoundland with three of my colleagues. The labor, I remember my wife said, I know a guy that'll build us a deck. And I said, I, I, know, I know four guys. Uh, Broadback, Ferguson, Stewart, and Molson will build us a deck. Uh, <laughs> my uh, labor costs were $380 worth of beer. <laughs> Start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning. Power tools. Great. Good, good tip for you kids out there. Um, but you can just have a beer, even in that case, which is clearly uh, a psychoactive drug, alcohol. So I think the intuitive definition will have to do, but it's really annoying to me. You know, and that's why, for example, as I mentioned before I started recording, is that, you know, people have talked about is something like, say, sugar, a drug. Well, it actually may act like one in the sense of, in our intuitive definition. It might. Right? You think about people saying that they're addicted to X, Y, or Z, addicted to, you know, internet porn. I don't know. Know where that came from? <laughs> That's why the internet was invented, wasn't it? For porn, internet's for porn, um, and they show similar to behavior to somebody who's got a problem with alcohol. Right? Are people that you see these? Uh, you hear these reports from people in in South Korea that sit there and play StarCraft uh, and and never get up and pee, and eventually they just die because they don't pee. Hmm. If we'd have the same problem, you know, defining food. I mean, we actually might. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't worry so much. Any thoughts or questions about that? Because I mean, it, it is something that troubles the hell out of me. No? Okay. All right. Names of drugs. Uh, chemical names can be useful. Uh, you know, 7 fluoro 1 3 di, uh, dihydro 1 methyl 5 phenol 2 H 1 4 benzodiazepine 2 1, for example. <coughs> it's clearly, that, that's that, by the way. It's smaller than that, the molecule. It's not actual size. That's really helpful. It doesn't help me. Know. That's great if you really like organic chemistry to the point of going, oh, what a challenge. I'm going to figure out what this molecule looks like. Yeah. Um, a generic name here for this, this same thing is diazepam. And in fact, you'll typically see in a paper, and you guys will be reading papers for your essays and stuff, uh, you'll also read in the book, etc. And I'll typically use—I will typically use generic names. This also note that has a small letter. Okay, it's got a lowercase letter. Uh, or fluoxetine. That's not what that is. That's a different drug. Those two have, of course, trade names, and they're called Valium and Prozac. So this. And this and this are all the same thing. Valium is a trade name. No, it's got a capital letter. The same thing is actually true, by the way, with heroin. Heroin is a trade name for dimethyl morphine. Sorry, diacetyl morphine. Heroin's a trade name. It was developed by the Bayer Company. The same people that brought me aspirin. Which is a trade name for acetyl salicylic acid. It's interesting to note that when... People have known for a long time, uh, you can get salicylic acid from um, birch bark. And it's a traditional remedy for pain, except it's an acid, so it's also corrosive. So what Mr. Bear did is he said, what I'll do is I'll, I'll toss an acetyl group on the front of it. That should deal with the, with the acidity, right? And then it'll, it'll be broken down, and I still get the pain relief, and it worked. And then we end up with aspirin, which was, you know, a panacea. It's a wonderful pain reliever. So he, he said, you know, morphine may be the same thing. I'll put some acetals on it. See, it's diacetylmorphine. And it suddenly is ten times more lipid-soluble. 
It crosses the blood-brain barrier pretty quickly. It's all beautiful. It's wonderful. He called it heroin because it was a hero. Because it would, it would, it would, it would, it would help people when they were sick, when they were in great pain. And it was around for a while, actually, as a regular drug. Uh, and then it became, you know, smack. <laughs> so and Tony Soprano started selling it. Um, so, in fact, it is a trade name. Unlike, you know, weed, that's not a trade name for THC. So you'll typically see generic names. Okay. How about dosages? Different dosage sizes will have different effects on different animals and people. And we can talk about different species. We can also talk about just individuals. So, especially if there are weight differences, right? Uh, even if you discount the fact that I'm pretty much a professional drinker, um, I think my alcohol tolerance is higher than Michael's because I'm bigger than him. Even if we've been the same age, right, and I'm like a little more than twice your age, I think, because um, I'm 46 and you're like, what, 21 or something like that. So, yeah, so I'm like more than twice your age. There'd be, let's just take that away. When I was the same age as you, I weighed, same as I do now, 180, 185. Don't kick your computer. Um, so I can probably drink more than you just because I'm bigger than you, right? Just like I probably need more Tylenol when I have a hangover, which I don't get because, again, I'm really good at drinking. Um, but I would need more Tylenol than you would. I can probably... Well, yeah, caffeine's a different story. Uh, maybe not. I can probably drink more coffee than you, too, or take more heroin. <laughs> just because I'm bigger, right? So we have to standardize that some way. Just so we can say, okay... Uh, no matter what your weight, and we do that with usually milligrams per kilogram, milligrams of drug per kilogram of body weight. And you will typically see that in, in articles. Um, so when you're talking about dosages given to, say, animals, to, to rats or to uh, you know, people or whatever, you're going to see what the milligram per kilogram is. Well, by the way, you can also change that into uh, millimoles per kilogram. That's done sometimes, but not very often. Not very often. So you might see it, and it's actually, a, if you know the molecular weight of the molecule of the drug, that's a pretty simple, as you know, pretty simple um, uh, conversion. Blood alcohol level for, al for, for looking at alcohol, that can also be done straight from milligrams per kilogram. There's a, it's a straight uh, transformation you can do. It's very simple. But you'll typically see milligrams per kilogram. So what we do, we get a dose. And this is if we're, if we're looking at a drug and trying to compare its effect between two individuals. We pick a variable for a response because we want to see what happens, right? We want to see if something affects something else. If the drug affects some behavior, some and he typically will be interested in behavior and cognition, right? So if we're interested in that, we pick some variable for a response. That's going to be our dependent variable. And pick some, and then plot that as a function of dose. Okay? So here's an example. If I have one drink, I, I get kind of relaxed. Right? Like we all do. You have a drink, you sit down, you have a martini, you have a lovely martini. 
have a beer. Long Island iced tea. That's, that's like having six drinks. Five. You make them properly. No, you know, real Long Island iced tea, it's actually illegal to sell in most Canadian provinces in a bar because it's a shot of tequila. A shot, you're going to get a lot of cocktail recipes in this class. It's a shot of tequila, a shot of vodka, a shot of gin, a shot of white rum, a shot of Quintreau, and you top that, or triple sec, and you top that with Coke, but just enough to color it. Because with all those shots of alcohol, you've got this much alcohol in your glass then with ice, and it tastes like iced tea for some reason. And it's got five shots of alcohol in it. And it's great, by the way. Don't drink more than one, <laughs> and you're fine. But if one real drink, like one, like a glass of wine, an ounce and a half of, uh, of uh, alcohol, so you know, for alcohol, so let's say you know, you have a martini, and yeah, then even a martini, just a shot of vodka or a beer, you relax. Four of those, or perhaps let's call it one Long Island iced tea, get a little tipsy, get a little silly, right? And then you know, my eight, I'm kind of relaxed again. <laughs> passed out. <laughs> it's interesting, by the way, that alcohol is a, it's a, it's not a stimulant, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a depressant. It slows us down. Yet, that's the effect that's happening here, right? It's slowing me down. That's the effect that's happening here, too. You might wonder why people get silly when they've had three or four or five drinks. They actually get less, they get more active. People dance. Hey, you know, women will just dance. Guys need to drink first. Right? You go to a wedding, we should dance. I gotta have like four more drinks first, then I'll dance. <laughs> karaoke. People don't tend to sing karaoke. Typically, unless they're those karaoke people. Just yes, some karaoke people are fun. You know, the people who do it for fun. Then there are people who think they're really gonna get discovered by somebody. Most people though, it's like, yeah, I need a few more drinks for you. People get in fights when they're drinking. That sounds like you're getting aroused, not like you're getting inhibited. But that's because you're inhibiting inhibitions. It's called disinhibition. See, so because there's all these inhibitions in our, um, in, our, in our nervous system in general, inhibiting all kinds of behavior, all kinds of nasty behavior. I bump into somebody, my first response typically is sorry, <coughs> partially because I'm Canadian. But that's also just partially because, you know, part of me wants to punch the guy. But that is pretty much inhibited. When I've had three or four drinks, you know, you walk into a bar. If, you, if that happens to you four or five drinks in, you go, what's your problem? You want to take it outside? <laughs> right? And that's because your inhibitions are being inhibited. Okay? So that's the alcohol strange. There's a lot of this happens with a lot of drugs where we get inhibition of inhibition. So this explains why you're sort of tipsy. Now, we could call this, what's, our, what's going to be our variable here? Well, it could be how loud I speak. In fact, a, a, a real effect of alcohol is that people speak louder when they're drinking. Right? Interesting thing is, I'll speak more quietly here at the beginning, and then I'll speak really loudly, and then I'll sleep this or that. <laughs> right? I'll quiet and I'll sleep. I'm never drinking again. So we could plot out how loud my voice was. That would be a very good uh, variable for us. Be easy to use, easy to do. Just need a microphone, and we get this sort of inverted U shape. 
oh, it could go the other way depending on our variable, but we get these sort of, we get two extremes and something in the middle. This is very common in a dose-response curve. With stimulants, you'll get the same thing. You'll get a little bit of stimulation, a whole lot, and then frankly, and again, if you've ever seen anybody that's taken um, cocaine or, or, or uh, meth or anything like that, I have a misspent use. youth. I've seen people take all these things. Um, when people are to the point where they can't even think straight anymore because they've taken so much cocaine, they actually aren't behaving very much at all. They're sitting in the corner going, <laughs> right? You'll see this with THC as well. You know, you want to talk about, for example, uh, we could look at something like what's a good variable for THC. Um, tapping rate. I want you to tap every five seconds or every second. Your ability to keep track of time really gets rather poor. It's actually the ability is the same, the average, it's just that your variance gets a lot worse. Um, and the same thing will happen here, where eventually you'll stop tapping because you're so high. But, my finger on the thing. You know, so, you might see something like that. So it's very common. And it's not just common like that in humans. This is uh, some rat data. Um, we're talking about morphine here. And this is on a couple of variables. Uh, here we have activity level, and I think what we have well, yeah, on the left is just activity. And how are we measuring activity? Well, this is on an open field, so this is on a, which is what we call it with rats, but it's basically, it's a, typically like a four-by-eight sheet of plywood, and it's got photo beams on it. And this is probably the number of times they've crossed the photo beams. Uh, I think that's probably per minute. Rats normally don't run around a lot in an open space. Because it's, you know, they're rats. It's dangerous. There might be a hawk that comes down and swoops down and eats them. So they tend to actually typically stay to the side of the, of the um, board, and they'll walk very, very slowly and deliberately. Then you give them some morphine. And again, there's the inhibition of inhibition. They start running around. They start running around. And then you give them enough morphine, and they're strung out. And they stop behaving. Nose poke is on the right. This is the, the uh, curve to look at here. What's nose poke? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's how many times they poke their nose, and it's into a hole that has a photo beam in it. It just shows investigative behavior, investigation, right? Same thing with running around on the open field. So this just shows, and this is number of nose pokes in 20 minutes. There's not a whole lot else to do in this little box. So they poke their nose into a hole. <coughs> now if we give them, the interesting thing is here, if we take a look here, here's your Morphine. This is with naloxone. Morphine and naloxone. Naloxone is a morphine antagonist. It actually is an opiate. But it blocks morphine receptors. Okay? And because it blocks the receptors, the morphine, but it doesn't actually cause the release of a neurotransmitter. Don't worry if you don't know that neurotransmitter jargon stuff. We'll get there. It basically stops the morphine from working. Uh, if you overdose on heroin, the first thing that happens when you're taken into a hospital is you're given naloxone. 
so no more of the morphine can bind to any opiate receptors. When I say morphine, it's because when heroin is uh, part of the metabolic pathway of heroin, so heroin because diacetylmorphine, the uh, diacetyl, the two acetyl groups are lopped off by an enzyme and you end up with morphine. Anyway, so if you take a look here, look what happens when I give them naloxone. It basically has blocked, almost completely blocked the effect of the morphine. So this is how we can see how effective uh, naloxone is as an antagonist. Okay? Questions? Make sense so far? Okay, we can talk about the effectiveness of the drug. There are two important <coughs> quantities we look at, the ED50 and the LD50. The ED50 is the effective dose for 50% of the population. The LD50, and this is going to be subjective in anything we're talking about, the kind of drugs we're going to talk about, because it's going to be, does it, perhaps it's controlling a psychiatric problem, or perhaps uh, it's being used recreationally. Either way, it's or maybe it's to control pain. Either way, I'm going to have to ask you if it's working. Right? There's no other way I can do this. I can't actually say, you know, like, you know are you high yet? That's what I've got to do. Now, I could use some kind of variable. I could use, uh, I mentioned tapping rate, things like that before. But if we're actually interested in the effect, or even pain, even pain. I can, can, I, can I measure pain? Yeah, I can. Uh, you can use something called a dolorimeter, which is a, a pressure device that pushes a little pin on usually a bicep. You want something that's not going to hurt too much. And it pushes, and then you say, as soon as you say now, that means it hurts. And then you just take a reading of what the amount of pressure was. But I might be working with pain with, with people that are, let's say, burn survivors. I'm not going to do that as well. They've already got into the shitty enough deal. So I'm just going to say, does it hurt anymore? Right? So a lot of times we're going to be using something subjective here. But we can measure things like this. LD50, on the other hand, is the lethal dose, and that's not subjective. That means it kills half the population. So this is going to be pretty much subject subjective to ED50, more or less. We're going to base this on self-reports of some sort. We almost have to. Not always, but we almost always have to. This is different with, if we're looking at, you know, is it re reducing the amount of... <laughs> some infection or something like that with other drugs, we can do that quite objectively. We can't do it so well with, you know, do you still hear voices in your head? It's a little harder. So lethal dose of 50% of the population, that clearly isn't subjective. So the ED50 and the LD50. What we want is something with a low ED50 and a high LD50, right? We want something that works very quickly with very little drug and can't kill me. We can actually quantify this. The therapeutic index is the LD50 divided by the ED50. The higher the index, the safer the drug. So if we think of popular psychoactive drugs, the kind of things we'll talk about in this class, uh, the therapeutic index of LSD is virtually infinite. It's almost impossible to overdose on LSD, no matter what the cop that visited your grade 8 class told you. Now they need the, the therapeutic index for THC is virtually infinite. You can't smoke so much marijuana that you will overdose on it. 
therapeutic index for heroin is about five. Therapeutic index for lithium. Anybody? And I'm not asking this. You have to. But if anybody here. Uh, is bipolar or has someone in their family that's bipolar, they might take lithium chloride to deal with the um, manic part of bipolar affective disorder. Uh, the therapeutic index there is about three. Be very careful with lithium. Therapeutic index for alcohol is about three and a half. Hey, look, heroin's safer than alcohol. Three and a half, four. So what you, you know what that means? That means the amount you take to get drunk and let's say in an hour, in an hour, six drinks gets you what you call drunk. I don't mean over the legal limit. A, a beer and a half will do that. But I'm talking about enough that you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm hammered. That means if you multiply that times about three and a half or four, depending on the person, you're dead. This is why things like, you know, funnels and shotguns. Machines, you ever drink machines where you do the layers of things so that the bottom has something heavier than the top and the bottom of the glass and you've got like a Coke or something or orange juice and then you carefully pour vodka on top of it and it floats on top and because glasses pour from the bottom and you do it very quickly, you don't taste the alcohol. Many of, some of the, I said I have a misspent youth. And then in that way you can drink, you know, a 40 ounce of vodka in 20 minutes and die. Uh, let's see, what's another one? Uh, cocaine is pretty high. You know, it's going to be above 10. Most stimulants tend to have higher therapeutic ind indices than depressants. They tend to. Uh, caffeine is so high that it's virtually impossible to overdose on caffeine. Um, you would need... And like the, the, the effect of dose of caffeine is quite small. Uh, let's, a cup of coffee, right? So let's call it 100 milligrams. To actually overdose on caffeine, you need to ingest about 8 grams. No, sorry, 80 grams. <laughs> it's only 100, let's see, 160, it's like 1,200 cups of coffee at once. You need to go with pills. Now, again, you might get very sick ingesting that much caffeine. You might do something really stupid if you take 30 or 40 or 50 hits of acid. You're not going to overdose. You might do what a friend of mine did and decide that the cops were part of a conspiracy and jumped on top of the car and tried to rip the uh, siren off. They don't dig that much, the cops. You end up in jail for a while. And they really don't think it's cool. And then when they take you, you piss on them. They don't. This is something a friend of mine did who's now a very responsible executive, and I'm not going to say what company for, because then you may be able to figure it out. He, like most of us, has a misspent youth. So you might do something stupid, but it's not the LSD you'll kill, it's the dumb behavior. It's like, I can fly! Hey, look, flying carpets in the air, I'll, I'll, I'll pop on one. No, not so much. Dave. Yep. <clears throat> But what about other side effects from those drugs? Like, those can cause some serious oh, yeah, sure. like, oh, physical God. problems. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, the, the therapeutic index of nicotine uh, is actually pretty good because it's hard to smoke 
What's that the lights? That's creepy. It's hard to smoke so much in one sitting that you die. You know, when used as directed cigarettes, kill. Um, eventually. Right? Um, now, can you overdose? Yeah, there are in fact, cases every year of kids that, little toddlers and stuff, that eat cigarettes. And they eat half bag of cigarettes. Like, actually, that's, that's enough they can take with it. Because it's out at once. Right? Um, so, yeah, of course, those are, that's a whole other map. But if we're just talking about the therapeutic index, the, the, <coughs> the effect of the drug and the fact that will, it, will the drug actually kill you right now? Uh, it did just one way of looking at it. Yeah, we have to look at uh, primary and secondary effects or, or, or main effects and side effects, as I'm called, for sure. And we'll talk about that. Other questions? Good question. The lights are free, it's freaking me out. I take a completely naturalistic worldview. Nonetheless, I don't like it. <laughs> this is like the worst sequel ever to Paranormal Activity. <laughs> the lights just go on and off a few times. It's like the Blair Witch, not even project, just some sort of side, Blair Witch side project. I am so afraid of the lights right now. Ah, uh, yes, a reference to 2002. Um, okay, we also have potency and effectiveness or efficacy. So, but we get two drugs that are doing the same thing. <coughs> so find the ED50 for both drugs. The one with the lower ED50 is more potent. So, the one you think less of is going to be a more potent drug. Efficacy is about the maximum of effect the drug will have. So if we were to compare morphine to aspirin, or ASA, <coughs> morphine is more potent than ASA because you need a whole hell of a lot fewer milligrams of morphine to have an effect on pain than you need of, of ASA and aspirin. It's also the case that there are, there's a level of pain that aspirin can't deal with. Right? If you just had... Surgery, they don't just say, here, take a whole bunch of aspirin. You'll be fine. They give you morphine. Right? And eventually, perhaps, you know, things like ibuprofen, Tylenol, you know, ibuprofen or, or, or um, acetaminophen, things like that. So morphine is both more potent and more effective. Sorry, more potent and, which is the same thing as effective. So more effective and more efficacious than ASA. Questions about that? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, some other stuff. We can look at primary effects or main effects and side effects. This is what you were asking about, Sarah. Um, this really depends on your point of view. Again, this is going to be all subjective. If you're taking morphine to deal with pain, the main effect is, is the analgesia, is the, the pain zone. So if you're being given morphine because you just had surgery or because you were in some sort of accident or some such thing, that's the main effect. That's why you're being given morphine. There's a side effect. You're hot. You're going to feel like you're flying. This is why, and I mean, this is one of the things that really bugs me about all the idea of banning OxyContin. OxyContin is a really effective and potent <coughs> opiate. It works really well for severe pain. 
It's a great drug. It's also a lot of fun. <laughs> now that's the problem. So it's so and because it was you know it's available in drugstores rather than like it's hard to get. So people break in and they steal it and they end up taking it for fun. But the idea of banning the drug because it's really effective to me is bizarre. But it's the same reason we've banned we've made heroin illegal and heroin is basically just morphine that works really well. In Canada, you can at least do research on. Uh, and in fact, in certain situations, we look the other way when hospitals, when usually um, palliative care units give heroin, because it just works really well. So they give heroin to you know dying cancer patients. In the states, it's illegal to even do research on heroin. In Canada, you can. The RCMP come to your lab every week and they they weigh everything and they look at the. It's really intense. My buddy who did the thing with the LSD also worked in a lab with this was once he'd become a little bit more sensible, uh, worked, worked in a lab where he would, um, uh, he was giving injections to rats all summer. That was his summer job. And he was giving some of the rats heroin. And he said, you know, every week the RCMP came in and they looked at the logs of who signed in. But he was just, he, was, he had hair, access to heroin, you know. But in the States, you can't even do research on heroin. And the thing is, heroin's a very effective and very potent painkiller. It works. Just because there's bad, do we ban gasoline? People huff gasoline and it ruins lives. Do we ban gasoline? No. Yes, maybe we should. We're killing the planet, etc., etc. Okay, Al Gore. But we don't ban gasoline. We don't ban contact cement. Right? We don't get rid of magic markers. Right? You can get high from sniffing magic markers. We've all done that in grade five. I don't want to <laughs> Back in the old days, probably before most of your time, they used to have ditto machines, running on photocopies. You got handouts in school, and you'd all sniff them because they smell like alcohol. <laughs> A couple of us showing our age in here. They didn't ban those, they just stopped using them because Xerox machines are better. So it's interesting that, <coughs> like I said, Oxycontin's a really nice, effective painkiller. It also has a side effect. It makes you loopy. And it's easy to kill yourself with. Bad side effects. If you're taking it because you want to you know, groove to some 60s psychedelia, then the main effect, that was a band, Quicksilver Messenger Service from the 60s. They were, okay, just Google it or something. Available on iTunes. This commercial brought to you by Apple. Um, we think you're going to love it. Just one more thing. In that case, the main effect is being high, and the side effect is don't lean on the stove because you right away won't feel your hand burning. And oh, wow, my headache's gone. And I feel like I'm flying. So it's interesting that it's odd to me that sometimes we ban drugs that are perfectly useful, and it's based totally on why people take them. Right, we, we, there's a move to get rid of Oxycontin, which is a great drug. We ban THC, we ban marijuana, right, which is a pretty safe drug. We allow people to drink alcohol, which has very few, there's some positive side effects. <coughs> the, uh, it's good for your heart in moderation. In not moderation, which is not what, how most people you know, still drink it, in not moderation, you end up not doing good things to yourself. We allow that, that's fine. So It's just bizarre to me. 
but it's based purely the idea of main effect and side effect or primary effect and secondary effect are based totally on your point of view. All right. Questions so far? Okay. So here's some more. Here's some terms. An agonist. An agonist is, in our situation here, is a drug that makes the nervous system either make more of a neurotransmitter or it mimics one. So if you take a look at, say, something like morphine, it mimics, it's almost the same molecule as endorphins that we make ourselves that we use for painkilling. That's the function of them. They're almost the same molecule. On the other hand, we can look at something like About oh benzodiazepines like um, well like diazepam you know Valium. Well, what that does is it makes GABA. That's a different neurotransmitter. We'll talk about this. Don't worry about that. If you don't remember it or you haven't, we'll look at it. It actually makes GABA, which is a, an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's the thing that basically is the thing that generally slows you down. It makes it work better. In that case, it's a neuromodulator. It's called. So an agonist is any drug that makes the nervous system either make more of a drug, make the drug more effective, or um, actually just mimics the drug itself. Oh, sorry, the, the, uh, I should, everywhere I've said drug, replace neurotransmitter. An antagonist does exactly the opposite. So naloxone is a beautiful example here because naloxone blocks opiate receptors. We have opiate receptors in a part of our brain, uh, the periaqueductal gray, that basically controls pain, our, 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 our feeling of pain. If you get naloxone in your para, uh, if you're given naloxone, it actually blocks endogenous opioids. It, it blocks endorphins. <coughs> but it will also block heroin uh, or, or oxycontin. It's interesting what you can do in this case. Naloxone is actually quite a cool drug because we can find out a lot of times that things that are used as so-called natural pain remedies or, or pain techniques, you know, things like breathing properly. Well, I mean, frankly, natural childbirth, right? And if you've had a kid or you, 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 you know anybody who's had a kid or whatever, you've been through this where you probably go to the, 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 the classes, the, the birth classes, and they teach you the, the breathing and the coaching and the... You're doing great and holding the hand and all that. Then you learn the excellent breathing technique, give me an epidural. <laughs> just breathe in and then just say that. Um, but, you know, it actually does work. People feel less pain when they do these breathing techniques properly. Uh, and people wonder about oh, just some crazy Eastern mysticism. But no, actually, uh, if you give people... Have them do the breathing technique and do the, what's called the cold presser task, which is one of these great pain tasks. You put your hand in a bucket of ice water, salted ice water, so it's like minus 10. That gets painful very quickly. And you, what you measure is you say, how long can you keep your hand in there? Your hand. And they have them do the breathing techniques. They can hold their hand in longer. Then you give them the lock zone and do the, bre and, and do the breathing technique. They can't hold their hand in anymore. The breathing technique has made them make endorphins. 
most of these kind of things that we do that are sort of, that we call them natural whatever, they're really just us making our own morphine, which I think is kind of cool, actually. So we use naloxone a lot in this pain research because we can see if, it, if it's uh, something that's not controlled by the opiate system or something that, that is. Now, drugs have additive effects. So if I take drug A and drug B, and let's say drug A makes me six units of high, and drug B makes me four units of high, if the drugs are additive, I have now 10 units of highness. That's an additive effect of the drug. It is very rare when two drugs are additive. They have to be the same um, type of drug. They typically have to be working on exactly the same system and be metabolized exactly the same way. If you're taking two SSRIs, they might be additive. I said might. This is not me telling you to, you know, also borrow your friend's other SSRI. That's really rare. Drugs are almost always super additive. Drugs are almost always super additive. Meaning, it's not six units of high plus four units of high equals ten. It's six and four and then some other effect. So you end up being 27 units of high. Think of it if you've taken stats, you know what an interaction is? Think of it like that. Think of it like an interaction effect. Now, why does this happen? And here's my example, which is diazepam and alcohol. Nothing. Um, this is really weird. You think, why does that happen? I mean, you, you know this, right? If you've ever taken. Have you ever taken diazepam? Value. It says in you know, great big block letters in the side of the prescription, do not take with alcohol. Hell, if you've ever taken like a muscle relaxant, over-the-counter back medication, you know, Robaxaset, that kind of stuff, don't take alcohol with that. You could kill yourself. Well, why? Well, alcohol works on Alcohol is, is metabolized by a couple of systems. There's a regular alcohol metabolic pathway, and we'll talk about that with alcohol. And there's a secondary alcoholic pathway, alcohol pathway, that is when you drink a lot, it's like a backup system. It's like, oh my God, he's getting hammered. We better get some of this alcohol out of him. And it's called the MEOS, M-E-O-S, the microsomal uh, ethanol oxidizing system. Doesn't matter right now. We'll get there. Okay, great. So you drink too much, it gets out of you. The problem is that diazepam is actually, the metabolic pathway it uses is the MIOS. So what happens now? Now I have diazepam taking up space, being used by the MIOS. By taking up space in that metabolic pathway, the alcohol cannot now get metabolized quickly enough. And now when I have one drink, more, it's like I have an extra drink in me as well because it's not getting broken down. So now we have a case where if you have two drinks 
and a couple hundred milligrams of Valium, you die. Because those two drinks are like you're actually having six at once. So seriously, when you see that, never, you can do whatever you want to your body, just don't get behind the wheel of a car. That's all I ever ask about anybody, because you might, and I don't care about you, you might hurt me, or my family, or someone I like. But if you want to, I don't care, you go smoke crack, I really don't care. But please, the one, because I'm not, you're adults, I'm not going to moralize to you. The one piece of advice I can give you is don't mix your drugs. Tonight, we're just going to take heroin, you know, just stick to one thing. Don't be sitting there going, boy, this crystal meth has got a real edge. I'm going to take it off with a little heroin. That'll kill you. It's called a speedball. It's what killed John Belushi. It's probably what killed Chris Farley. It apparently kills fat SNL actors. So, <laughs> What about something as um, like, simple to get as like, Tylenol and alcohol? A t- oh, that's a very bad idea. Oh, don't do that. And that's not because of uh, anything. So what happens is Tylenol, acetaminophen, uh, is actually metabolized in your liver, and so is alcohol. And the same kind of idea, you can end up with really serious liver damage taking most of together. Don't. Okay. Yeah, really don't. In fact, when you have a hangover, you still have alcohol, and you should take aspirin. Okay, so yeah. like aspirin and alcohol. Well, I still, is, I still probably shouldn't do that. But it's not going to kill you. It's not nearly well. Look, Tylenol and alcohol likely won't kill you, but. Do it enough that you'll damage the hell out of your liver. Yeah. And what about something like gravel? How would it? Oh, God, don't do that. That's a, a gravel's a, a barbiturate. You'll kill yourself. <laughs> oh, no, gravel's a barbiturate. It's, it's a. Um, yeah. Don't I do that. I know somebody that used to do that all the time. Oh, no, people do these things. Washed, take two Tylenol and gravel, and go to bed. Oh, that's a bad idea. No, don't do that. Yeah, like I said, I always. No, it's amazing their life. Yeah. Um, no, it's like, well, you know, people hear about, uh, again, I don't think anybody should be banning Red Bull. You hear this one too. You know what the kids are doing? They're mixing Red Bull and vodka. Yeah, I know. People also, in the 70s, drank Irish coffee. It's the same damn thing, except it tastes better. Because it's, it's, it's Irish whiskey and, co- and good coffee and whipped cream on top. More of a meal, really. <laughs> What's it doing that's making you wide awake drunk? The problem is, and you might say, well, that, that's not a problem. The problem with that, of course, is that when people are wide awake drunks, they actually can't tell they're as drunk as they really are, and they drink more. It's not so much that the combination of caffeine and alcohol is going to hurt you. It's the fact that you know when you, because of experience, you know when you drink too much because you start to get kind of woozy. And the alcohol makes you wide awake. Or sorry, the, the, the caffeine. This is the problem with mixing, um, uh, say, something like Red Bull or any energy drink and alcohol. So it's not something inherent about it. But again, you've got to realize that a lot of these effects of these drugs are just, are, are, well, they're physiological. The way they affect us is psychological. It's, it's cognition and it's behavior. So this is why, again, I wouldn't do that just because I, I don't think it's a good idea. You know, it's a poor man's speedball, right? <laughs> Alcohol and caffeine. Because um, it might make you drink too much. But it's not like it's inherently dangerous like, like say, you know, sleeping pills and, and, and gin which will just do you in. You know. I'm not suggesting, like I said, I wouldn't mix them anyway. I wouldn't mix, say, who drinks Red Bull anyway? <laughs> no, really. It's horrible. Drink a good cup of coffee. You know, at least have something satisfying and pleasant instead of put some cream in it. 
little cream, not very much, a little tiny bit of cream. <laughs> no sugar. You don't put sugar in coffee. It's not dessert. <laughs> Bugs the hell out of me. Um, all right. So you got to be really careful about mixing drugs, and that's why. It's because a lot of times you're not going to know. And I mean, you'll see this when you see it on the side of a package. This is don't take with alcohol. They're serious. Right? How do you get drugs in your system? Well, you need a vehicle if you're injecting it. That would be saline. You don't just inject liquid heroin. <laughs> such thing as liquid heroin. Now, if you want, and this is going to depend on the kind of effect you want. So if you're doing an inje injection, you might want to do a subcutaneous. That's just underneath the skin. Injection. That's going to get you nice, slow absorption. When do you want slow absorption? Well, you want, might want a really steady rate, right? This would be something therapeutic, likely. You can also go intramuscular, which is pretty slow. It's a little faster than subcutaneous. Um, this would be something like into your thigh, into your butt, something like that, right? Big piece of muscle. Uh, except for like intravenous injections, which obviously. Of these three, the fastest is intraperitoneal. That's into your gut. IP injections. Again, this is going to be something probably an emergency situation, things like that. But you know, for example, uh, when medics come to soldiers and they've, they've been hit on the battlefield, they don't have time to give them an intravenous uh, drip of, of morphine, what they'll do is they'll take a little thing, it's called a surette, and it's got morphine in it, and it's got a pin in it, and they just go in the guy's arm, usually because they're soldiers, they usually dies, and they're trying to be sexist, don't give me that crap. Hit their arm with it, it injects them, it's an intramuscular injection, and it's enough morphine that the pain goes away a little bit, right? Because they don't have time to, you know, they're getting shot at, well, I'll just hold up this bag of morphine, you know, they don't have the time for that. They'll do that later, the field hospital. So intravenous, now in that case, let's say you want to do an IV injection, let's go right, right into the bloodstream. <coughs> so that's going to be faster than those, those three above. Right into a vein. And this is where, now you want really fast, this might be because of something clinical, like you're, you're doing um, killing pain and you want to do that very quickly. But it also might be you're taking heroin and you want that to get to your brain quickly because it's fun. You said both of those were the fastest. No, no. Uh, this is slow. This is a little faster. This is the fastest of these three. Okay. Then intravenous. Yeah, I should make that, should I make that clear. Sorry, can you say again where the intraperitoneal is? Is that into the heart muscle? Into the gut. Into the gut. Where would something like um, an epidural fall into that cat? Like, is it intramuscular or is it? No, it's an IV injection. Okay. Yeah. Because it, you know, it works very quickly. Right. Yeah, it's. I think pretty sure it's an IV injection. I never had one, so I don't know. And when my wife had one, I had to leave the room, which is weird. Say for everything else, I can't. You know, it's weird to me. Our daughter took a long time, let's just say that. 
59 hours. Oh my god. I'm amazed that my wife didn't kill me. Look what you've done to me! Because that's what I would have done. <laughs> and then, you know, you think, that, well, the next one will be fast. The next one will be quick. That's how I always say. So the next one, they, the rule of thumb is half the time. Yeah, it was right, 30. John took only 30 hours. They half each time. This is why we stopped having children, one of the reasons. Um, no, it's not. It's because we don't like children. Um, and I'm not a very good parent. Intraventricular, this is the ventricles of the heart, or you can also want the ventricles of the brain either way. It can be either one of those. This is typically going to be a research approach here. Right? Unless you're going into the heart muscle and you're watching Pulp Fiction and you got, a, you got the epinephrine. That's actually how they used to deal with people having heart attacks. It wasn't, you know how now they got that clear? It looks like you're playing Battlefield 3. Anyone? No? Um, used to be that beside heart patients' beds was a, was a, heart, a, like a cardiac kit, and that kit was, bone, was a scalpel, bone cutters, and a, and a, and a needle full of epinephrine. Because you go slit, boom, 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 spread them open, give them an injection. Now we just go, you know, clear. I, I doctors just probably, I bet medical students just do it for fun. Walk around with those things. Clear. Most of these things get into the bloodstream by diffusion. Obviously not IV injections, don't. They're already there. Okay, so they just diffuse into the bloodstream. Uh, inhalation, which is another way that we take drugs, smoking cigarettes, smoking um, uh, marijuana, uh, inhaling nitrous, nitrous oxide. That's a good time. 45, the best 45 seconds of your life. You know, with it's nobody, what's wrong with you people? I haven't done that in a very long time. The night before my PhD oral. That's this great picture of me, 10 hours before my PhD oral. And I got whipped cream all over my face. So <laughs> much I ever did that. It was a little bit too much fun. I thought I could devote my life to this. <laughs> I'm just not going to do this anymore. So they can be gases or solids, right? Um, what you're getting with doing nitrous oxide is gas. Um, things like um, tobacco, like nicotine, tobacco, or, or marijuana, THC. Those are, those are actually solids typically. There's gases too, but the, the active ingredient is, is a they're just very small amounts of solids. Now, oral, orally, the amount we're going to get in our body is going to depend a bit on lipid solubility. That's in other words how how soluble something is, how much it easily dissolves in fat. The more soluble something is, the easy, the quicker the absorption. And if you're taking something orally, well, any way at all, but it seems to make more of an effect here, ionized molecules aren't absorbed. Um, and the rate of absorption from orally, uh, oral absorption, is going to be constant. And see, unlike, let's say, if we need an IV injection, we're going, it's all right away in your bloodstream. If you're taking it orally, so I don't know, you can take a pill. You get a nice constant absorption. This is going to be great for something clinical. Right? So you're taking an antidepressant. It also is great if you take enough of something if you want to get high, so you're taking, you're eating um, hash brownies. 
which are also, and of course, hash marijuana is, is lipid soluble, which makes it it's really good with all the fat in the baking. I'm just saying. <laughs> and your house smells like weed for days because you've been cooking weed, you idiot. <laughs> A friend of mine, parents, this is, yeah, she was. We were in our twenties, so it's not like it was. Well, it was illegal because it was marijuana, but it wasn't like we were children. She was making these hash brownies or cookies, like chocolate chip cookies, but chunks of hash. It's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not, doesn't sound very appetizing. No. And then she said, my mom's going to come home in a couple hours. And I said, your house is going to smell like this for a couple of days, you idiot. She's also rather a successful executive now. I don't think she does that anymore. <laughs> yeah, maybe she does, but not at work. So the rate's going to be constant, and that's going to be great for something clinical. Let's say you're taking an antidepressant, as I said, or any psychotic drug, right? Or let's say you don't have intense pain. So you don't have horrible, intense pain that you need an IV drip of morphine. So maybe you can actually take a pill. It'd be a nice constant rate, and you don't have to be hooked up to an IV. Once the drug's absorbed into the bloodstream, it has to get past the, unless you're doing right into the ventricles of the brain or in some sort of research and, or right into some area of the brain, and that's done very rarely, clinically at least. You have to get past the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier, think of it like a sieve. It's like a sieve, and certain molecules fit through, and other ones don't. It actually isn't a sieve. It's myelin around, neuron, around um, blood vessels. Now, some things get across this membrane through active tra or passive transport. In other words, they just go through diffusion. And other drugs get through the blood-brain barrier with active transport. So a transport protein shows up and pulls, in essence, pulls the um, drug molecule across. Uh, some drugs, sometimes uh, enough protein, will, some proteins will bind to the drug molecule that it can't fit through anymore. Or there may be <coughs> enzymes that break down the drug itself. Again, depending on the drug, so in very broad strokes here. <coughs> it's taken out of the bloodstream by the kidneys and the liver. Like everything else. And most things you pretty much pee out. That's pretty much what's going on. Most everything you pee out. Some things you pee out and sweat out and breathe out. Alcohol's like that. There's a reason your, your breath smells like alcohol. And, you know, it's not just because you've had alcohol in your mouth. It's because if you eat peanut butter, you don't smell enough peanut butter breath for a day. Right? It actually is alcohol coming out of your breath. And we measure this in half-life the same way we would with uh, radioactive half-life. So if I give you the half-life of uh, caffeine in an adult human is about 30 minutes. So I gave you 100 milligrams of caffeine. In 30 minutes, you're going to have 50 milligrams of caffeine. In 30 more minutes, another half of it is gone. So now you're going to have the 25. In 30 more minutes, et cetera, et cetera. That was a lot more What is it? Caffeine? No, I think it's 30 minutes. Cocaine's about 110. It also depends on um, the person and enzyme induction and stuff, but yeah, I think it's about 30 minutes on Now, for kids, it's different. Right, but for an adult, we're, we're, adult humans are caffeine metabolizing machines. 
Isn't alcohol so linear? Alcohol's weird, yeah. Alcohol's the only one that isn't measured in half-life. Alcohol's actually measured, it is, it's a linear function. So while the night before you can't have, and you know, Joe just mentioned the idea of say, caffeine, and no matter what it is, it is measured in half-life. So if you have a cup of coffee before you go to bed, some people can do that, I can't do that anymore, you won't wake up in the morning not eating a cup of coffee. But alcohol, you can wake up in the morning and still be drunk and not really even know it because it's, it's, it's not going like this. It goes in, in a linear fashion. Alcohol is a weird drug. It's weird, it's dangerous, and it's legal, and I encourage its consumption because it's fun. It's also great to cook with, you know, it's all kinds of things. So then on average, how long does it take to detoxify? I know it would be different. For it would depend, depend on the person, etc. but I mean, um, most people are still, would still blow over the legal limit, which is what, 0.05 right now, right? Um, most people would still blow over the legal limit after a night of drinking the next day. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. If you wake up in the morning and you've got a hangover, you usually can still taste alcohol in your mouth. If you can still taste alcohol in your mouth, you're still metabolizing alcohol, right? If you wake up in the morning and you've been smoking weed the night before, you might have a little bit of the case of the stupids, you know, a little bit of mush brain. Um, but you have to have smoked a lot of weed and been up pretty late for that to happen, you know. Um, whereas, like, with alcohol, literally, if you can still... If, you, if you're hungover, you probably shouldn't be driving. But even if you're not hungover, that's the interesting thing. You know, if you had six beers the night before and felt a little good, you wake up in the morning, you probably have a little, you're probably impaired. It's bizarre. Yeah, alcohol's dangerous, man. If we were to start everything all over again, alcohol would be banned. We'd all be just dead with weed. It'd all be just marijuana. I'm, I'm serious. I bet that would happen. But I mean, the chance of it all starting over. Well, once the rebellion happens and I've become philosopher king. Um... <laughs> What's going to affect the metabolism of any of these drugs? Because that's the, the, so that's the breaking down, the absorption of breaking down. Well, your age. Uh, that depends on the drug, but typically the older you are, the little less efficient you get at it. Um, on the other hand, uh, sometimes there's different metabolic pathways. Well, I've mentioned caffeine. Caffeine in, a, in, a, in an adult human, we're pretty good at it. Caffeine in, a, in an infant or perhaps up to a toddler, even maybe a little older, the half-life is three and a half days. Don't give little kids caffeine. It's caffeine and chocolate, by the way. Sex, and I don't mean the having sex. I don't like the word gender because I'm talking about X and Y chromosomes. People are afraid to say the word sex, male or female. Uh, for example, females uh, tend to not be able to metabolize alcohol as quickly as males. A lot of that's due to the fact that females tend to have more fat content. But that's not the only thing. There's different hormonal environments, right? Uh, species. Interesting here, I mentioned, you know, you do a lot of animal research, I showed you those rat data. thing is, sometimes there are cases where we can certainly do that and say, we're going to look at human, we're interested in humans, but we can't get humans into the lab and give them, I don't know, PCP. <laughs> That's something you can do. You can do it with monkeys. Monkeys and angel dust. You can do that. You got to know what you're doing. But you got to make sure monkeys absorb and metabolize exactly the same as we do, right? And this is one of the cases with caffeine, for example. You can't do caffeine research on, you know, monkeys or dogs or whatever because they metabolize it like little kids, and they the half life's really long. It's a whole different metabolic pathway. 
So that's going to play, play a role. Uh, there's enzyme induction or enzyme depression. Sometimes it ends, there are enzymes that break down drugs. I mean, that's, there's enzymes that break down all kinds of drugs. So sometimes the drug itself, when the body is recognized, right, enzymes are produced to start breaking the drug down. However, sometimes with other, if you had something else in your system, it'll stop those enzymes from being produced. This is a lot of times where you get very strange things like the metabolism of caffeine is sped up by broccoli. <laughs> it's enzyme induction. It breaks down the caffeine. For some reason, when you consume broccoli, it induces the enzyme for caffeine metabolism. One of the enzymes in caffeine metabolism. I don't know. So you can see there's another case where we might end up with the superadditive effect because we might have enzyme depression. If we put absorption and excretion of the drug together, we get what's called the time course of the drug. And here's a nice little graph of the time course. So we've got, here's the absorption curve. Here's the excretion curve. We take this and subtract this, and we end up with that. Simple math. I never said there'd be no math. Except you don't have to actually do it. You just take my word for it. So that's the time course of the drug. Um, so you see that? And what we might want is the amount of the drug that's going to be effective, we want that to be big. That's going to give us what's called a big therapeutic window. It's maintaining enough of the drug in the system. Right? Now, especially for something if we're going to be giving it for, let's say, an antipsychotic drug. Somebody's hearing voices. They've got parents schizophrenia. That's serious stuff. And... You want that to be something where they take one pill every day, maybe. That would be good. Because you don't want... Part of the problem with schizophrenia, for example, well, what is schizophrenia, right? It's, it's paranoia and all that stuff, so what ends up happening? <coughs> well, if you go off the drug, you start believing that there's a, par there's a, there's a, there's a conspiracy out there. You're not going to take your, your medication. You want to give them something that they can take once a day, maybe every couple of days if you could, right? And it keeps a nice, steady level of the drug in the system. Same thing with um, a painkiller. We want to keep that steady. Now, if we're taking something for fun, we want a huge peak right away. Right? This is why you inject heroin into your blood vessels. You don't do an IP injection. That's no fun. It'll stop you from coughing. It's about a, it'll be a painkiller and such, but you won't get nearly the rush, Right? So that's easy if the drug has a long time course. But that's a lot harder if the time course is shorter. So this is why you have to take a look at the time course, but also take a look at the um, method of, of, of absorption, the root of absorption, because you put those two together depending on how you're doing things, right? depending on what you're looking for. If you're looking for something therapeutic, you want the big therapeutic window, you may very well just be giving them something orally, right? Or in fact, depot injections are used sometimes now with uh, uh, antipsychotic drugs. So that people have a little bladder that's 
implanted under their skin, and you inject once a month. You have to inject them with an antipsychotic. There's a downside to that. Uh, one of the very common delusions that people have that are schizophrenics is that they're having a chip implanted in them, and you're actually implanting something in them. So if they do go off the drug, you know they've got that feeds into everything. It's not good. But that's actually that's also used sometimes for insulin now for for diabetics give them a steady rate of, of insulin. So, I mean, this is something that's now being looked at. Because now we can totally, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just going to slowly absorb. Perfect. All right, I think. Oh, look, it's 1118. Um, all right, next time we'll continue this, and we'll talk about the brain stuff. All right? Thanks, guys. under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.